episode 92, Revisiting Panspermia with Professor Vikramasinghe. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. The idea of panspermia, that life exists throughout the universe and spreads via asteroids, comets and cosmic dust, has been around for a very long time. Two of the strongest advocates were Professor Fred Hoyle and Professor Chandra Vikramasinghe. In this episode, I spoke at length with Professor Vikramasinghe about his long and distinguished career championing the idea of panspermia. Professor Vikramasinghe, first of all, thank you very much for making your time available. Um, I want to talk primarily about your work and, and your experiences. Uh, very long and detailed experiences in the field of panspermia. But if I can start off by asking you, just as uh, SETI, the search for in- extraterrestrial intelligence, had difficulties being seen as a mainstream science endeavour in the 1960s and 70s. You and Professor Hoyle had similar difficulties, surely, with panspermia in those early days. How did the idea of panspermia evolve and what kind of difficulties did you have in with fellow scientists in that field? Yes, that is certainly the case. When I started thinking about panspermia in the, uh, in the early 1970s, it was certainly regarded by most people as a theory that had been disproved a very long time ago, possibly as early as the beginning of the 20th century. And the reason for this, this kind of assertion was that there were a few French scientists who in the early uh, 1900s had claimed that uh, bacteria could not survive in space. And they had claimed that they had done certain experiments that showed this. So everybody, everyone at that time accepted that uh, panspermia was not uh, valid anymore as a scientific theory. We knew now, of course, that this is not true at all. There are many, many types of bacteria exist that are ideally suited for uh, conditions in space, suited for space travel. And, um, and, and surely if bacteria and viruses are entrapped within dust particles and clumps of dust particles and ice and rocks and meteorites. They can indeed survive in space and, and, and survive uh, almost indefinitely. So that's the, the backdrop and that's the reason for the disbelief that uh, I faced at the beginning. But but the, uh, I, think, I think we have to take the story a little further back uh-huh. because the history of panspermia goes back a very long time. Uh, in ancient Greece, there was uh, a philosopher called Aristarchus of Samos, a small island, Greek island called Samos, who in the 5th century BC proposed uh, a very bold proposition, it was at the time, that the seeds of life 
are distributed everywhere throughout the cosmos and that these seeds take root whenever the right conditions prevailed. And, and but this this is a Western um, story, but the same idea, as we know, can be found much earlier in Vedic traditions of ancient India, uh, in in a different form, maybe in poetic form, but the same general concept of life being part of the universe, being eternal, and so on, is is very much an ancient Indian tradition. But uh, uh, as far as the, the Western science is concerned, about maybe a couple of hundred years after Aristarchus of Samos, Samos another Greek philosopher, much more famous philosopher, in fact, Aristotle, proposed an alternative idea. And his alternative was called spontaneous generation of life. The idea that life is generated spontaneously in essentially in situ from non-living matter and that this happened whenever the right sort of ambient conditions prevailed. Uh-huh. And one famous example, I think this, we all know this from our school days, I guess, uh, the Aristotelian spontaneous generation is given uh, in terms of fireflies emerging from a mixture of warm earth and morning dew. And this was an observation that Aristotle made, I suppose, that he found fireflies uh, sort of creeping out of uh, the uh, the piles of earth in the in the early hours of the morning. Earth was the center of the universe, according to Aristotle, and Earth therefore was also the center of life. So, the idea of Earth-centered universe was sort of inherent in in throughout the the entire history of Christendom, as it were. Uh, and we know, we of, of course know that the Earth-centered universe was uh, a big problem for medieval scientists, and um, it was a lot of agony to uh, disband that uh, point of view, which happened through Newton and Kepler and so on in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. But the idea, the concept that life originates on the Earth is firmly built into our present scientific framework. So that's the kind of backdrop uh, that the work of um, myself and Fred faced in the early years, from the 1970s onwards. Your uh, life story um, is interesting in itself, apart from the science scientific uh, uh, endeavours you've been involved in. Let me take you back to when you were 16. Um, you took uh, some pictures of a uh, total solar eclipse when you were in Sri Lanka, Ceylon, as it was known then. Just give me an idea of what kind of scientific interest uh, you had at that time as a teenager. You obviously were building telescopes and taking photographs of natural scientific phenomena. Well, I, yeah, I was inter- interested in science from a very early age, from maybe an age of t- 10, 11, 12, I was really kid. Uh, curious uh, little boy, but uh, in June 1955, it was a rather rare, rare event in Ceylon, in Sri Lanka, because this was the year of a total eclipse. In June 1955, there was a total eclipse of the sun that was visible from a sort of strip of Earth uh, that included Sri Lanka. And this eclipse was unique in a certain way because it had the longest 
period of totality, that is total darkness, uh, in a century. Mm. And uh, I think it's for this reason that Ceylon suddenly became the focus of an enormous amount of international scientific activity. There were sort of groups of scientists from Japan, from England, from the US, and so on, who all converged on the island. And the newspapers, local newspapers, were full of uh, stories of what they're going to do. And as an aspiring young budding scientist, I could not avoid being uh, essentially caught up in the euphoria that surrounded this uh, mm-hmm. great event. But I also built myself a very, very primitive telescope from sort of scraps of bits and pieces that I could find in the in the house, a refracting telescope, a very simple refracting telescope, with a cardboard tube, tube uh-huh. and a couple of lenses. Uh, and this actually the camera at the end of it. And I actually succeeded in getting my own images and pictures of the eclipse, which I still have. So that was uh, <laughs> a, a fun encounter with, uh, with science. Do you still have copies of those photographs? I have a photograph of the a picture of this telescope. Uh-huh. And I have also uh, copies of the, uh, I'm sure I have somewhere, uh, <laughs> pictures that I took. Of the of the sun eclipsed. Wonderful. Now, um, the reason uh, it's quite interesting. You're saying that the um, because of the eclipse, um, a lot of Ceylon became the centre of uh, attraction, international interest. Many scientists came from many different parts of the the world, and, and this is the the reason for that is because unlike a lunar eclipse, which can be seen anywhere where you can see the moon. Solar eclipses are usually visible only for a small part of the Earth where the shadow passes over and Ceylon happened to be in that part of the shadow then. Did you make contact with any of these international scientists or groups during that uh, period? No, I did not, but I followed their their, uh, pronouncements in the newspapers, Mm -hmm. newspaper accounts of what they were going to do and so on with great interest. Uh, There was also... I went to a school that was modelled on on Eton in the UK ah. called Royal College Colombo, mm-hmm. and they had invited uh, one of the scientists to give a talk, one of the visiting scientists to give a talk about the eclipse. So this was also an event that was quite memorable for me. Apart from you being an accomplished scientist, but your father was in Cambridge in the uh, early 1930s at a time when there's a lot of uh, groundbreaking physics being done, particularly in uh, particle physics. how What influence did your father's experience in Cambridge have uh, on you before you arrived in Cambridge? Oh, I think it had a very profound uh, impact on my life, on my early life and, my, and on my career path. Yes, my father was indeed a brilliant student, a highly gifted mathematician. And he went up to Cambridge, as you said, in the 1930s, which was a period of great ferment in science, in physical sciences, and uh, it was the time of the, essentially the birth of quantum mechanics. And there was a lot happening in astronomy. The planet Pluto had just been discovered and so on. Uh, so that was a great time to be in Cambridge. And my father had many stories of... Uh, uh, his experiences there, which uh, sort of filtered through 
the the family and reached me at a very very early age. My father won a what is called a senior scholarship at Trinity College after his first year's exams, uh, and in his final exam he excelled in the mathematical tripos, getting the highest honors in that exam and graduating as what they call a B star wrangler. And it, I think it's interesting to to recall that he actually specialized in astronomy. And he was taught by a guy called Eddington, Sir Arthur Eddington, who was the legendary astronomer of the 1930s. He and Eddington and um, and Einstein were thought to be the only two people who could understand the theory of relativity. So that was the guy that uh, taught my father. And in a letter to a prospective employer, Sir Arthur Eddington writes about my father as one of his most brilliant students. So, I mean, that was uh, quite a uh, quite a sort of inspirational backdrop for me to start life uh, mm. with, in fact. And so, uh, in, in terms of my father's own career, for practical reasons, he could not pursue uh, his life's ambition, which was to be an astronomer, to do research in astronomy, because there was no money in it, no jobs in, in the colonial salon for such a person. Mm-hmm. So in, instead, he ended up uh, as an administrator in the Indian Civil Service, a very famous civil service that was instituted, I think, in the late uh, 19th century, isn't it? This was a mm. uh, time when the, when the uh, British uh, thought they had to rule India, not by sending large numbers of British scholars and British administrators, but they thought they had to train the local people in the culture of the West. So this was the Indian Civil Service to which my father uh, joined and uh, basically assisted the British to run India for a while. He mm. was uh, in India for a short while, and then he returned to, uh, to his home country, Sri Lanka, Ceylon, as it was. My father was also a role model, and mm. it was more or less natural, it seemed at the time, that I should turn to astronomy. And, and it's mostly um, astronomy and maths that you studied in uh, the Royal College in Colombo. And then when you applied uh, to do a PhD in the UK, and your uh, supervisor there was going to be Fred Hoyle, Prior to arriving in Cambridge, what did you know about Fred Hoyle? Well, I knew about Fred Hoyle mainly through reading one of his books. By the age of 16, I was already reading, as I said, books on astronomy in the house. But I also picked up a book from a local bookstore, bookstore in Colombo, called The Nature of the Universe. Very slim um, sort of fifty-page book written by Fred Hoyle. Uh, I believe it was a, a set of BBC lectures that was put into this uh, little book. But and I must have read this book many, many times, and it literally changed my life, huh. absolutely. And there's not no exaggeration to say that. I think after reading that, I decided then and there that I would follow a career in astro- astronomy if at all possible, and. Uh, and thereby also followed the route that my father was not able to take in his own life. So this was the um, the start of 
of my connection with Fred. And, and I think it's uh, really interesting that Fred Hall was the successor to Sir Arthur Eddington as the Plumian Professor of Astronomy at Cambridge. And um, as I said, Arthur Eddington taught my father. So <laughs> at the age of 17, I won a scholarship to the University of Ceylon. And after three years, graduated with um, a first-class honours degree in maths. Then I won, I was amongst the first batch of a uh, new scheme of scholarships that was uh, started by the uh, British uh, government called the Commonwealth Scholarship Scheme. And I, that took me to Cambridge and to work with Fred Hall. And was it possible uh, for you whilst you were in Ceylon, to select your supervisor in Cambridge? Or is that something, a decision that was made when once you arrived? No, I, I mean, it was entirely fortuitous. That right. I had a letter suddenly out of the blue from uh, arriving at my doorstep in Hilton Place, Colombo 4, as it was called then. A letter, a handwritten letter saying, uh, Dear Vikram Singer, I have been appointed as your supervisor for a PhD, and uh, I would like you to read this and that and a few books, uh, a list of a few books. So this was letter, handwritten letter by Fred Hall that uh, um, arrived at my family house in, in Colombo. So that was my first uh, uh, knowledge that Fred Hall was uh, to be my supervisor. I had no choice in it at all. <laughs> Yeah. And do you still have that handwritten letter from Fred Hall? Yeah, I have all those things, yeah. yeah. Okay. In fact, I'm, I'm collecting all such similar material for an archive mm -hmm. that was supposed to be housed in Sri Lanka, first as a physical archive and then as an electronic archive, but with the sort of uh, all the uh, events of the last year that has been uh, put on hold. Right. Well, these are uh, unique pieces of um, history in themselves, really, you know, uh, apart from your personal connection with them. Um, you studied mathematics as an undergraduate at uh, uh, the Royal College in Colombo, and then mathematics with uh, Fred Hoyle in Cambridge. Um, but then you switched to, oh, if I can call it astrobiology, the study of uh, panspermia. You could have gone into many different aspects of astronomy, say, um, that Fred Hoyle and Arthur Eddington worked on the nucleosynthesis, for example. Um, was it a, a very obvious jump, as it seems, looking back from me, my perspective, that you did do a switch from mathematics to um, astrobiology? No, it wasn't a switch directly from mathematics to astrobiology. I'm, I'm, I did my PhD, in fact, in what was called the Faculty of Mathematics uh, at Cambridge University, and the Faculty of Mathematics included astronomy at the ah, time. I see. Uh, and my research for my PhD was in theoretical astronomy. In the 1960s, when I first came to, went to Cambridge, I started working on a very mundane problem of how the, trying to explain how the sun reversed its magnetic field on a, on a re regular rhythmic basis. And so that was, uh, a problem that I tackled, a problem in purely in sort of magneto-hydrodynamics of the subject mm -hmm. that was involved, and, and I completed that in within a year and so on. And at the end of that, I went to Fred and said, what next could I do? 
uh, having finished this project. And I wasn't particularly excited about doing uh, anything more on the sun or on solar physics and so on. So he suggested that I perhaps looked at a problem that had been thought to be completely sewn up, which was the composition of cosmic dust. And Fred himself believed at the time that the the matter was not at all resolved. We really didn't know anything about the the nature of the cosmic dust. It was a, a total mystery, and it was uh, a problem that merited a uh, very careful re-examination. So that was the my start in um, astronomical research to to explore the properties or investigate the properties of uh, cosmic dust. But I should also say that at the time that I came to Cambridge, there was a lot of things apart from sort of mundane astrophysics that was happening in Cambridge. For instance, there was the, the massive conflict between the cosmological models that were being debated and discussed. The steady state model that was proposed by Bondi, Gold and Hoyle and the Big Bang, Big Bang model of the universe. And this, uh, there was a fierce uh, debate going on. And so it was a very uh, interesting time to be in Cambridge at that time. I didn't personally take an active part in the debate as such to begin with. But um, I watched it with great excitement and interest. Hmm. Now, I'm going to come back to um, that aspect of your work with uh, Fred Hoyle in a moment. But just a question just to help me uh, for my benefit, really. Um, the work you did, uh, you, you said it was mundane. I thought it was really <laughs> exciting. The um, Working on the magnetohydrodynamics, I'm trying to understand why the sun's... Um, Flip. Poles flip every 11 years or so, giving us yeah, our yeah. cycle. So what is the cause of that? Why does the solar, the magnetic field in the sun flip every 11 years? Oh, it's because it's, I think it's a, just a, the, the, the fact that the, the, uh, the magnetic field has a, uh, has a finite lifetime. It decays and, uh, the currents are re, uh, established the electric currents and maintain the, the field of the sun is, of course, a rotating star. Mm -hmm. So the rotation of the sun about, about its axis and uh, the general drift of material uh, over the photosphere of the sun is what essentially dictates the uh, the flipping of the magnetic field. I mean, that's that's as far as I got. But I didn't really go much deeper into that, mm -hmm. as I said, because I was I thought it was uh, compared with other sub other topics like cosmology, like uh, the composition of cosmic dust and so on, it wasn't, uh, it didn't excite me as much. Mm. But, uh, so that was the, um, that was an early experience of research that I found mm. uh, quite uh, uh, yeah. enlightening in many ways. And, and it was an introduction yeah. to research methodology. And it's uh, some work that um, Fred Hoyle excelled at and almost got a, a Nobel Prize for that. Um, can, well, can, yeah, I think at the time that I went to Cambridge, I mean, Fred had uh, just completed his massive uh, sort of um, opus of work on nuclear synthesis, on the on the history of the chemical elements and the, the theory that all the chemical elements are essentially formed 
through nuclear reactions that take place in the deep interiors of stars. And this was work that he started himself uh, single-handedly in the 1950s. And then he got involved with collaborations across the American continent with the Burbages, Margaret and Jeffrey Burbage and William A. Fowler. Mm-hmm. So they they I mean, they essentially had completed this, and at the time that I came to Cambridge, this was almost sort of completely sewn up. We at that time, human beings knew that the that the chemical elements of which they are made essentially came from stars. So I took up the uh, the next uh, stage of this uh, argument of evolution, as it were, of ourselves from from cosmic material. What happens next is what I was uh, concerned with. Hmm. And, and it is a, a, a fantastic time. Um, maybe you can help me with this. I, when I'm describing Fred Hoyle to people who've never heard of him, I describe him as a um, the 1950s and 60s and early 70s version of Brian Cox, because he did communicate with the public and on the BBC and radio quite uh, quite extensively. Would you say that's a fair comparison? Well, in terms of his public exposure, it certainly is uh, a valid comparison. But I think there is no comparison between the creativity of the two individuals concerned. I mean, Fred Hoyle was a massive. He changed the face of astronomy more profoundly than anyone in perhaps in the previous 100 years or so. Hmm. Uh, I cannot find any area of astronomy that has not in some way been touched by his genius. He's contributed to almost every conceivable branch of astronomy that was going around, going, uh, flourishing at the time in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. One of the key things that preoccupied uh, science uh, during his time was the idea of where the universe came from. And there were two competing theories. The one you say, you mentioned already, by Bondi, Gold and Herman, the steady state origin of the universe that it's always mm. been there, and the Big Bang Theory. Now, Fred Hoyle was um, quite a strong advocate of, uh, well, originator, one of the originators of steady state. Did he ever, nearer, um, near, perhaps later on in life, did he ever change his mind towards recognising the Big Bang as a, a valid um, origin I think he he never recognized the Big Bang as being an absolute origin mm-hmm. of the of the universe, and I mean that was the uh, the sticking point with most of his collaborators and colleagues. Uh, they had argued that there was enough evidence for a Big Bang. Uh, the microwave background was considered to be evidence of uh, a hot Big Bang, the radiation from that hot Big Bang, now degraded to to very long waves, to mm-hmm. microwaves, and the microwave background was, of course, discovered in the 1960s. And the discovery of the microwave background was basically the reason that most astronomers thought that the steady-state theory argued was uh, dead and buried. But, I mean, Fred never, Fred Hoyle and his collaborators never fully accepted that. I mean, they did accept that there was an early hot phase of the universe that was uh, responsible for the microwave background. But was that the absolute beginning? And that remains a question even 
to the present day. I mean, the very naive, uh, simplistic Big Bang models of the universe are even at this very moment producing contradictions with observations. There are stars that are fully fledged stars that should not be there at a very, very early stage in this Big Bang history. So uh, could there have been a succession of Big Bangs? Could this last explosion be just the last explosion, uh, one out of uh, an infinite number and so on? So I think these problems continue to be to be relevant. And I'd, I, for one, do not believe that the final word on the nature of the universe has, has been said and may never be said. Mm, okay, and that's the way the science goes. It's uh, everything's usually provisional and accepted on that basis. Yeah. Let me turn to your work. Uh, one of the earliest papers you published was um, on graphite particles as interstellar grains, suggesting that the um, and, and it's been shown to be the case that uh, the interstellar medium dust grains are used, are organic in nature. So before we go into that, can you explain where that idea, I'm just thinking you were doing maths and astronomy, what triggered your, your interest in looking at this subject initially? Well, I was supposed to, uh, my, 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 my brief, uh, when I first, uh, when I went to Fred, after I finished my work on this, on the sun's magnetic field, uh, the brief that he gave me was to investigate or to, to look again at the ideas relating to interstellar dust, the cosmic dust that essentially makes up all the dark clouds that one sees against the, the background of stars in the Milky Way, right? So there are huge uh, swathes of dust that one could see uh, across the, the Milky Way. And this is the, the, this was the composition that I had to investigate. So I looked at all of the, the evidence from spectroscopy, from light scattering, the way that these dust particles scattered, absorbed the light behind them, behind the stars that lay behind them and so on. And I very quickly came to the conclusion that the, the prevailing theory that these were huge concentrations, clusters, clumps of icy particles could not be correct. So that was the received wisdom at the time that the cosmic dust was made up of myriads of tiny sub-microscopic, sub-micron-sized ice grains, similar to the ice grains that are present in, for example, in the cumulus clouds of the Earth's atmosphere. So my work, my research, my calculations and Comparison of comparisons of these calculations with the astronomical data very quickly showed that this whole theory could not be correct and that it was fundamentally wrong. So what happened was that all this uh, new data that came essentially from the advent of the space age, from space technology, from s balloons to begin with, and then satellites to observe stars, uh, uh, free of the atmosphere. All this data was uh, piling up in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s. And when, it, when I combined this data with my own calculations, I found that the cosmic dust was, could not have been made of ice and had 
on the contrary, to be predominantly made from the chemical element carbon. And uh, you will remember that carbon was one of the the key elements that Fred Hoyle discovered uh, could be formed in the interiors of stars. The uh, special level of the nucleus, energy level of the nucleus of carbon was discovered by Mm. Fred. And uh, it was that presence of that particular energy level in the carbon nucleus that permitted carbon to be made in stellar interiors in large quantities. So when I found that carbon had to be the the major component of the interstellar dust, I was really quite excited because it's connected with the, the work that had already been completed by Fred and his collaborators on the formation of the element carbon, of the chemical element carbon. So what we then have to say is that the dust is made largely of carbon. Uh, and the next question is what type of carbon? And I, my first guess was that it was in the form of graphite, like the sort of soot particles that mm-hmm. uh, come out of a of a coal fire, or tiny microscopic dust particles, graphite dust particles. So we argued, and I argued with Fred Hall that these must form in the outflows of of material of gases from stars. But this this conclusion changed with time, changed because new observations were coming in all the time, new astronomical observations, new technologies were put into use in astronomy. Uh, there was, for example, in the early 1970s, the birth of a new discipline called infrared astronomy. Until then, astronomers were uh, looking only at stars and astronomical data in the visual and in the near ultraviolet wave band, uh-huh. right? Almost, almost the, the wavelengths that we can see with the eyes. Now we had techniques and uh, instruments to look at the further infrared region of the electromagnetic spectrum. And, and that's the, the region that's pro- provided the the sort of next big step in the evolution of my ideas about the nature of dust. Very quickly, in 1974, I published a paper in Nature arguing that the, the carbon dust in space had to be not graphite, but uh, made up of organic polymers. Mm-hmm. Long chains, these are long chains of organic molecules, uh, similar to the chains of molecules that exist in living systems. So that was uh, that was the first sort of uh, approach uh, in a very distant way from uh, inorganic dust uh, to astrobiology, to, to biology across the universe. And uh, I think by, by the very early 1980s, uh, 1981, we had accumulated enough evidence to make the enormous intellectual leap from organic molecules that we that I published in 1974, organic molecules being the component of dust, to the possibility that life itself was involved in the distribution of this material right across the universe. What if the organic material that we saw everywhere that we could find unequivocally, unambiguously everywhere, what if that um, 
material came from life itself, because we know, for instance, that the earth is uh, full of organic material on the surface. You take a lump of soil, it's, uh, it has huge amounts of organics. And all of that organic material in the earth comes from biology. You never think of saying that there were inorganic, non-biological processes uh, producing this organic material. It is biology. So the, the question that then came to mind was why is it different? Why should it be different in the universe at large? We are finding all of this organic stuff in very varied uh, types of organic materials in the universe, materials that are distributed exactly in particles that match the sizes of bacteria and viruses. Uh, so why should the uh, conclusion for the universe be different from the conclusion that one has uh, normally on the Earth's organic material. So that was the, the, the sort of next um, step in our thinking. Uh, and uh, we made many predictions. If the, the, the stuff in space was uh, derived from biology, if there were microorganisms and viruses in the interstellar space, mm -hmm. there are certain predictions that one could make and could we verify those predictions. And lo and behold, those predictions were verified with an amazing degree of precision from the 1980s onwards. So, I mean, Fred has always maintained that if you had a wrong theory and you had made a large number of predictions from that theory, if every single prediction is verified uh, and none is, uh, is uh, essentially disproved, then one has to conclude that the theory has a very high probability of being correct. So this was the position that we reached right through the 1980s. The more and more data was accumulating from astronomy, from geology, from biology itself. And uh, none of this new data was in contradiction to the predictions from the idea that life was cosmic, life was universal. So panspermia, I think, came suddenly to be revived with great force. And today, although it is still disputed, of course, by many conservative scientists, it remains, I believe, and I firmly believe, the most plausible explanation for a huge swathe of data and data ranging from astronomy to geology, as I said, to microbiology and even mainstream astronomy, uh, mainstream biology. So that's, that's, that's where we have reached at mm. the moment. And I think you were at the right time and the right place in meeting up with uh, Fred Hall in the early 1960s because uh, the timeline looks, uh, uh, looks a bit like this to me, that in the late 1950s, I think Fred Hall wrote that... Uh, sci-fi book about it's called the black cloud about the idea of uh, organics uh, material in huge interstellar clouds drifting through the universe and then through the advent of uh, space-borne infrared uh, telescopes you were able to collect that data and verify that there were indeed organics in space and then taking that idea further um, the it makes sense to think that these 
clouds could seed planets uh, from which life on Earth and, and other planets could emerge. Um, what were the most complex organic molecules that have been found in interstellar clouds so far? In terms of uh, precise spectroscopic detections, uh, the amino acid glycine has been found. Mm -hmm. uh, the amino acid glycine is one of the most common amino acids in biology, so that's, uh, that was a, a, a triumph. And a sugar, and a couple of sugars, and long chains of hydrocarbons and uh, aromatic molecules that could be the degradation products of, uh, of DNA, all of those have been found. And what has not been found was uh, is uh, explicit detection of DNA, for instance. But mm -hmm. but that is a difficult uh, difficult uh, very tall order to uh, to expect that spectroscopically one could uh, prove that DNA exists in space. Instead, what we have for absolute certain is that we have uh, predictions of of the absorption properties of bacteria and viruses, the gross absorption properties in the infrared, the ultraviolet, and so on. Uh, and these have been astoundingly matched to an astounding degree of precision with the astronomical observations that came after the prediction. So you make a prediction, mm -hmm. and we made the prediction, for instance, that if there are bacteria between us and the center of the galaxy, a certain very specific infrared signature should be seen in the spectra of very, very highly dimmed stars. And this was uh, uh, put, this request for telescope time was put to various committees in the late 1970s, and all those committees said, this is crazy, we can't waste our time on, on making such a comparison because that doesn't make any sense. And as it turned out, I had a brother who was also an astronomer, in fact, didn't a uh, younger brother who has, was then a professor at the University of uh, in Canberra at the Australian National University, and he had access to the Anglo-Australian Telescope. So he and his colleague, David Allen, used telescope time that had been assigned for another project to look for this prediction that Fred and I made for bacteria in space. Mm -hmm. And within within a week, he found a spectrum that matched the uh, behavior of bacteria so exactly that they were really over the moon. This was uh, the days of fax machines, so they, they immediately faxed the spectrum to us in, in Cardiff, and we overlaid it with the spectrum that we had, the predictive spectrum from bacterium, and, and the match was just uh, astounding. So um, th that, that was uh, really an amazing prediction. When was that observation? This was 1981. And is that, um, when you say bacteria, obviously this is a spectroscopic detection. Yeah. And viruses can survive for a long time in the vacuum of space. But yeah. we're talking about something slightly larger than a virus and a bacteria. So has that uh, observation been repeated elsewhere since? It's been repeated time and time again. And that same spectrum has been reproduced, but the conservative attitude would be to say that maybe this is a coincidence, that mm -hmm. the match is just coincidental with the properties of bacterium. Perhaps you can have uh, a bunch of organic molecules if you suitably tweak the composition that would match the uh, 
uh, they match the same spectrum, but it hasn't been shown to be so, and so it remains uh, an idle speculation. I think the bad, by far the simplest explanation of the fact that that life is uh, explained, that microbiology is the explanation mm-hmm. for this spectrum. Uh, so I mean, that was just one aspect of it, but uh, there were many, many other predictions that we made from within biology, from uh, in geology, for instance. Now we know that the earliest evidence for life on Earth is uh, at something like 4,200 million years ago. And this evidence is in, in rocks in Australia, in outcrop of rocks in ancient, uh, in ancient sediments in Australia. It's 4.7 billion years ago. For 4.2 billion years yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. That is almost at the time that the Earth's crust was, uh, was settling from, from a very, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, ferment of, uh, impacts of asteroids and comets. So at the very first moment that life can survive on the Earth, uh-huh. one is now finding evidence of bacterial bacteria locked in the locks, bacterial evidence locked in the locks in the in the Earth's early rocks. So there's no question that this this was uh, this stuff was delivered by comet impacts. There could have been no primordial soup that could conceivably brew at uh, at that time, early history of the Earth. And um, uh, the attempts on, and, uh, to take a different uh, stand on the same mm-hmm. issue of, uh, of abiogenesis or spontaneous generation, mm-hmm. experiments in the laboratories of the world have continued from the 1950s, from the time of what is called the Uri Miller experiment, right? And they first uh, showed that uh, organic molecules that might be the building blocks of life, that these could be made in laboratory conditions, they've been trying to make simple living organisms from um, uh, under laboratory conditions. And the, all these experiments have been a dismal failure. And the failure results, we think, as Fred Hoyle and I have argued, results from the fact that the arrangements of the organic molecules, like the arrangements of amino acids in um, in proteins and uh, the nucleotides in DNA have to be so precisely correct for life to emerge that the improbability of this event is is huge, is super astronomical. Uh, so that's that's in our view the reason that all these experiments have been a failure, and it would they would continue to be a failure for an eternity. Okay, so uh, I'll just summarise what you've said there. The um, I grew up with the idea of um, the primordial soup, uh, which is the idea of the basic constituents in organic materials like water, methane, and hydrogen and oxygen, oxygen which would have been in the early Earth's atmosphere. That's what the uh, Uri Miller experiment demonstrated could be used as a starting point to produce organic material from inorganic material and what you and Fred were proposing is that yes that's fine but the original material that uh, was you came into the earth's atmosphere came from these interstellar clouds which had some organics in them already yeah the material in space is uh, unquestionably 
Mm-hmm. Uh, indisputably organic in, in very large uh, quantity at the moment, but to a very large extent. So the ex- existence of organics is not the issue. The existence of the arrangements of those organics into the specific uh, uh, forms that are needed for life, mm-hmm. the, the utter improbability of the uh, co- correct arrangements occurring through non-biological processes, is what is at issue. Okay, so and that's just just what what's required. What just additional time? Does, would uh, if the Miller-Urey experiment was was conducted for a longer period of time, would that conceivably res, um, ge- generate some results? Well, I think if it's if it's continued over a cosmic uh, <laughs> yeah. over a cosmic yeah. time scale and and yeah. over cosmic dimensions, mm. then it has to happen somewhere at some uh, some time, but. The point, the, the really important point is that the Earth's environment, the, the, the flask in the laboratory is just a joke. But if you extend the flask in the laboratory to all the oceans uh, of the Earth, that ah, still okay. is woefully, right. woefully inadequate. Okay. And then we, the next thing we thought was all of the, the aqueous environments in the solar system, the comets, for example, right? Comets are now known to have liquid interiors. Warm domains within the uh, interior of a comet is uh, essentially heated by radioactive heat sources, and there are uh, there are liquid pools that persist for uh, the entire history of the solar system. So, given hundred billion comets, mm. oh. uh, e- even that is not important. That that is not sufficient to overcome the improbability. The improbability is so vast that it takes uh, all the stars in all the galaxies in the entire observable universe to make the flip from uh, a simple mixture of organics mm-hmm. to the first evolvable, reproducible living system. So that's why that's the reason why we have argued really quite powerfully that life had to be uh, a truly cosmic phenomenon. It had to originate... Uh, on a cosmic scale, and then thereafter, the distribution across the whole universe is is trivial. Okay, uh, that's um, really helpful. It, it helps me understand issue of uh, doing a test in one laboratory for a few months, as opposed to millions of years in a planet-wide environment. Friend, just ask you one other thing. Um, we've established that uh, viruses can survive in space for very long periods of time and we are speaking in um, November 2020 we're in the midst of a a pandemic the idea of uh, pandemics and here on earth we've had them from time to time um, you were suggesting that um, they could also be results of um, extraterrestrial origin yeah, I think the pandemics have to be seen in uh, in the same in the same sort of wider context, uh, and it has to be seen in the context of life being universal, the evolution of life being triggered, or being essentially greatly assisted by viruses that are constant continually being inserted into genomes, and that we know uh, in the last uh, couple of decades there've been ample evidence that uh, what is called horizontal gene transfer happening on the Earth itself, co- assisting in evolution. So 
viruses are vectors of genetic information that can get into uh, evolving living systems, assist in, in pushing the evolutionary process forward against Darwinian natural selection, of course. And so this is a, a process that is now more or less experimentally, observationally uh, well attested. So it's in this wider perspective that one has to see uh, the emergence of uh, pandemics. Uh, from the moment that, uh, from the first moment that life uh, appeared on the earth, comet impacts have happened. Uh, we know that from the record of craters, for instance. We know that there was a, one event, certainly in recent times, the extinction of the dinosaurs caused by almost certainly a comet impact. And these comets spur impact episodes are often separated by millions of years. And um, according to our point of view, comets uh, bring new types of bacteria, new types of viruses, and these contribute uh, to the evolution of terrestrial species, species on the Earth. We know, for example, and this is very important to, to remember, that something like 10% of our own human DNA is comprised of sequences actually derived from viruses. And so where do these viruses come from? I think over hundreds of millions of years, uh, hominid lineage of hominids was subject to an unrelenting assault by viruses coming from comets. And these uh, bits that we see, the 10% redundant DNA or silent DNA in our own genomes is, uh, rep represents the residues of this um, siege of uh, viral DNA from space. Okay, so if the um, in the short history of uh, hominids uh, there has been such exposure to viruses which have uh, uh, potentially an extraterrestrial origin, um, are you surprised that so far within the solar system, despite all the instruments and rovers and landers that have gone to Mars, for example, so far no obvious detection of fossilized um, life has been detected to date? Well, that's not true at all. I think I dispute that. I think Mars is a case that is still being debated actively by various people. My own belief is that in, uh, already in 1976, mm -hmm. Gil, Gil, Gil Levin and, and Patricia Stratt, Stratt discovered really powerful evidence for for ongoing life on on the planet Mars. And then in recent uh, times, there's been the Mars rovers that have produced some really tantalizing evidence that could be interpreted. Uh, I haven't personally studied this data, could be interpreted as mm -hmm. current biology. And then there is the extremely enigmatic uh, emissions of methane uh -huh. that occur seasonally on the Martian surface. And the current uh, trend is to say that these are, could be volcanic, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but then if volcanic, how can it be seasonal? Why should it be seasonal? So I think biology, ongoing biology, is the natural explanation for it. And my firm belief is that uh, maybe next year when these landers go and uh, arrive at, on the Martian surface, there will be 
uh, a, a clamor to be the first to announce that <laughs> either the Chinese or the Arabs or the Americans have discovered life on Mars. But life on Mars is uh, is is a uh, is a given in my reckoning. Well, the, on, as far as meteorites are concerned, I think again mm-hmm. the evidence for meteorites is very very strong. It's been suppressed, denied. I don't know what happened. What's mm-hmm. the reason for it? But people don't like to to dwell on it too much. We ourselves, myself and my collaborators in 2012, uh, discovered an event in my home country, in fact, in Sri Lanka, a meteorite fall in the center of Sri Lanka, in a place called Polonnaru, which is a uh, UNESCO heritage site, an ancient city. And the, uh, there was a fireball sighting, and within minutes of the fireball sighting, a whole Paddy field was splattered with really strange-looking porous uh, bolides, and these have been studied in various universities in the UK, in Germany, in the US, and so on. And there's no question that these are extraterrestrial, because we have uh, evidence from isotopes, oxygen isotopes, that shows that it cannot be a terrestrial, that cannot be terrestrial rocks and so on. And there's evidence within those rocks for <laughs> microbial fossils. So <laughs> that's, that's just one of the recent uh, discoveries. And I think there have been lots of claims that have been sort of essentially sidelined by various people, by German paleontologist Flug in the 1980s, by Richard Hoover, uh, in the United States, and we, they keep coming up with uh, really powerful evidence of uh, microfossils, microbial fossils in meteorites. But the but the uh, the climate against life outside the Earth is still so strong that these tend to be either ignored or denigrated. And in the case of the Sri Lankan meteorite, I think it's very interesting to. Uh, uh, to tell you that people made the remark that mm-hmm. they, these are collected from a third world country. Oh. And in a third world country like Sri Lanka, people do not know the difference between a meteorite and carpet. Well, yeah, there is a whole heap of different dimensions to doing yeah. science. And Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, yeah. That's, it's sort of funny. In some <laughs> It's also a very sad comment. And very disappointing, absolutely. And I, I think I, I agree with you. I think there is um, likelihood of detecting uh, or likelihood of Mars having had life on it in the past, if not indeed still uh, today under some subsurface uh, environments on on Mars uh, right now. And it's just a matter of time before we find it. But it's getting that... Uh, you know, being a scientist uh, as you are, getting that uh, uh, um, experiment, being able to duplicate it uh, in different places, different times with a similar or identical results. Can you think of any, uh, have you uh, proposed any experiments which could be conducted either on um, on the surface of the Earth, maybe at high altitudes in the stratosphere or maybe in, even in Earth orbit that... Uh, uh, could lead to uh, perhaps something more that uh, uh, is would be undisputable in terms of uh, extraterrestrial detection of uh, living organisms. Yes, uh, 
that's certainly the case. So from 1980s onwards, after we discovered that we concluded that there's ample evidence for life in space, uh, both Fred Hoyle, myself, and a team of our collaborators, we tried very, very hard to get the international space agencies, including NASA, to devise t- t- really quite simple tests for our theory. For example, to sample the stratosphere for incoming bacteria and and viruses. Because we have known for a very, very long time, maybe, maybe even a century, that some many tons of cometary debris enter the Earth's atmosphere every single day. Just can you imagine that? One, in a, in a single day, you have a huge quantity of cometary debris coming in. Most of it, of course, gets burnt up on entry, and this is why you see the meteors uh, burning up. But a fraction of the uh, tons that are coming in drifts very slowly, gently, and falls to the ground intact. Uh, And this can be shown in calculations, in various demonstrations, and so on. So in the year 2000, and, and as I said, from 1980s, we've been asking space agencies to take a look at this without any response. But in the year 2000, we actually succeeded in convincing one space agency, and that was the Indian Space Research Organization, ISRO, to collaborate with us on this really exciting project. And in 2001, uh, jointly with ISRO and the team of UK uh, astronomers and biologists, we sent collecting devices into the stratosphere to heights of some 41 kilometers uh, to recover large quantities of stratospheric air. Mm-hmm. And we brought it back to the Earth, back to the ground. We distributed it in several laboratories. Uh, and we found unequivocal evidence of uh, microorganisms, infalling microorganisms, amounting to our estimates gave tons of bacteria and viruses falling over the entire planet in a single day. And this is just from a sample. Mm-hmm. We look at the sample, we find, uh, we note how long the sample took to collect and so on, and the volume of the sample. And you can make a very simple scientific extra- extrapolation, and that's what you get. So tons of bacteria, viruses, falling through at 41 kilometers could not be from the Earth, or very small probabilities, very small, small fraction maybe from the Earth. Uh, so this has been published. Uh, several microorganisms were discovered, new microbes were discovered by the Indian group, in uh, Israel group in 2007, including three new types. One was in fact named after Fred Hoyle, Hoyle was one of the names, and the other, another was named after the Indian astronomer Aryabhatta, the, the historic astronomer Aryabhatta. Mm-hmm. So these are two new microorganisms. They were they were not totally this uh, unrelated to terrestrial types, but uh, but they were new all the same. Mm. Okay. So the work, this type of work, has continued, but. Uh, not surprisingly, I think, it tends to be still ignored or dismissed and people can invent any any uh, statements if they dislike a, a result to say that they, they have to be contaminants 
two years ago, there was a paper published by a group of Russian astronauts who swabbed the outside of the International Space Station, not once, but something like seven times over a period of three years, and found bacteria, sort of swabs the bacteria on the outside of the International Space Station. Hmm. And this this is now, now, the Indian experiment is 41 kilometers. Now the Indian, uh, the, uh, the International Space Station is 400 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. And there's no process that one can think of, no natural process of lofting material from the surface to 400 kilometers. Uh, so I think these discoveries leave little doubt that the original uh, original conclusions about life coming in from the Earth, life being a constant, uh, uh, continually being um, injected into the Earth, uh, can be wrong. Well, I think the uh, um, this is something you've been pursuing for many years. Uh, there are many people like you, including me, who believe in the idea uh, in principle. It's uh, just a matter of... Uh, getting that uh, um, conclusive evidence. And I think the recent collection of uh, asteroid material from Bennu, which will make its way back to the Earth in uh, in a couple of years' time, that might have some... Uh, yeah, in, in, I think so. I think, I think things like that would be... I mean, they're, 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 they would be uh, unintended consequences of their program. I mean, they're not looking particularly for proving or, or checking or challenging the idea that if it turns out that these are uh, replete with microorganisms and then, then the, it's QED. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and, and of course, there's uh, um, another uh, rover on the way to Mars as we speak, so that might turn up some evidence as well. Um, but I think, I think really, I mean, there are really many groups of scientists, very reputable scientists, including a group at Harvard, who are all sort of uh, coming round to the conclusion that panspermia is an irrefutable fact. And there are also, I mean, I hate to say this, but there are also many attempts at, at claim jumping, and they often ignore the priorities that are very, really well established uh, relating to me and to Fred Hall. Uh, so that's that's happening, and I think people are beginning to realize that uh, that uh, life outside the universe is not such an outrageous idea after all. It is contrary to the reigning theologies, the reigning philosophies of science and uh, so on. But nevertheless, I mean, if you're going to pursue science, you've got to abandon theology. So I think it's, it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen on a very short time scale. But sort of accepting the full story at the moment is still riddled with many, many problems. And many of these problems, and I hate to say this really, are more con connected with sociology than science. And I really view a major reason for this is that the ideas that are coming to the fore are uh, evidently coming from myself uh, and from Fred Hoyle. Uh, myself particularly is not very, it's not, not a very salubrious uh, omen for Western science, the fact that uh, 
there's uh, it comes that this idea may be associated to a large extent from someone who hailed from an ex-British colony. Hmm. Uh, it's very hard. For, it's very hard for me to say this, but I really believe it to be true, and it's also true. I think, in a more gentle way, that uh, decolonization really has not taken place after the British Empire ended in the mid 1940s. The entrenched point of view, this is not admitted, of course, is that a major paradigm shift of the kind that we produce, that we have proposed, and this is not a simple paradigm shift. It really is one that straddles the whole of science, and it sort of turns upside down many of the views that have been cherished for a long time. And such a paradigm shift cannot possibly be attributed to someone who who hailed from the edges of a former British colony. I think that has to be admitted. I think the one has to face that. There is prejudice of all kinds. There is a huge amount of uh, racism going on in science that is is not admitted, but... uh, it's, it is there underneath the surface. When it comes to intellectual matters, to regard a group of people or a person from a particular point, a particular part of the world as being necessarily uh, inferior, subservient, or has to be subservient to the dominant paradigm holders, that cannot be defended. Well, I think the uh, science just like any other human activity, is uh, a little messy. It's complicated, despite it being rooted in uh, objectivity and data and evidence. It is the way that we humans do things here on Earth. Let me take you back to um, back to Ceylon, as it was then. Just before you left Ceylon, Arthur Clarke, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, made salon his home i'm sure at that point you didn't know him or maybe you did but did you have any interactions with him subsequently yeah i did i didn't know him before i left salon before i left for england i first met out uh, on a airplane in fact <laughs> in 1962 because he was traveling at the time he was resident in sri lanka he was doing his uh, deep sea diving and so on but he was going regularly back to his home in, in Somerset. So on one of his trips back to Ceylon, I also happened to be on the same plane uh-huh. and we exchanged platitudes. I was feeling a bit queasy. The plane was very, one of these old planes was very, very unstable and jumping around and so on. So, uh-huh. uh, so he comforted me to say that if, if you've gone in, on one of the buses in Sri Lanka, he said, you should be used to this. <laughs> but, so, so this is a sort of rather trivial way of, uh, making contact with him. But I did come to know him really well over the next years, mm-hmm. and particularly uh, in view of my very regular visits and connections with Sri Lanka. Yes, I did discover, discuss uh, panspermia with him, and discuss a lot of things, and his space uh, travel fiction, amongst mm-hmm. other things. And I regarded him as a, a very, very staunch supporter of the ideas of life in the universe and panspermia and so forth. He's, mm. He was a very, very strong um, supporter of this point of view. And I believe that he had an instinct uh, that this position of panspermia, life everywhere, life being cosmic, had to be right. Although, of course, he didn't 
follow all the signs in detail, and perhaps he didn't need to do so because he had some kind of other instinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one of, I think this is worth um, mentioning to you, one of his last books with the title "Greetings, Carbon-Based Bipeds." <laughs> I think one of his last or his penultimate book, in that he lists his predictions for scientific discoveries, a whole sequence of scientific discoveries and developments in the decades that lie ahead. And in his forecast for to 2061, he says the following, the return of Halley's Comet, first landing by humans on a comet, the sensational discovery of both dormant and active life forms, vindicating Hoyle and Vikramasinghe's century-old hypothesis that life is omnipresent throughout the universe. So that's that's his uh, conclusion. Well, uh, he and he's quite a visionary, and um, he's quite uh, a visionary. I think. He, I mean, there's no question that he, if not for his uh, paper in 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 a journal in a magazine, rather obscure magazine called Wireless World, we wouldn't have uh, sort of Earth satellites. Uh, communication satellites. He was the inventor of the communication satellite. I also <laughs> like his very percipient uh, observation that he often made to me. And this, I quote him, he says, every revolutionary idea seems to evoke three stages of reaction. They may be summed up by the following phrases. One, it's completely impossible. Two, it's possible, but it's not worth doing. Hmm. Three, I said it was a good idea all along. Again, back in uh, in Ceylon in the nineteen in nineteen fifty seven, um, Sputnik was launched. Did you go out and actually try to see? And did you see Sputnik? I, I did try to see it. I remember that I saw it, but I saw something that looked sort of consistent with the uh-huh. the object that was orbiting, and it, it was a great moment in my life too. To even to read about in the newspapers. And then finally, Professor, you retired some time ago. What sort of things keep you busy now? Well, I, I do a lot of things. I guess I, I, I seized, when, when you say retire, what I did, what happened was that I ceased to enjoy mm-hmm. the luxury of paid employment as a scientist in the year 2011. Uh-huh. This was the date of my sort of formal retirement from Cardiff University, but that was not retirement from my point of view, from certainly not reti- retirement from my pursuing science. I have a whole network of uh, collaborators, and I'm busier now than I ever was uh, before. I'm in the midst of writing papers and books and so on. So as long as I can think, I think, I hope, uh, I, I hope I will continue to to dwell on these great unsolved problems of cosmic life. Professor Vikramasinghe, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.